Could an 8 milligram dose intensify the therapeutic effect of a flibercept in patients with wet AMD? I'm Scott Kriswanis with Greg Notstein, and this is New Retina Radio's coverage of the ARVO 2022 meeting from Retina Today and Brynmar Communications. The Phase II Candela study sought to explore the safety and efficacy of high dose of flibercept on patients with wet AMD. What did Dr. David Brown and his research colleagues observe? And 96-week data from Archway are in. Did the complete study, which reached its primary endpoint after 40 weeks, reveal new data that could affect clinical decision-making when it comes to real-world use of the port delivery system? Hear our interview with Dr. Robert Mitra to find out. A flibercept is approved by the U.S. FDA for, among other things, the treatment of wet AMD. The approved dosage, whether from a pre-filled syringe or drawn from a single-dose vial, is 2 milligrams. But what if, researchers asked, a higher dose, specifically an 8-milligram dose, could intensify the therapeutic effect of a flibercept in this patient population? To answer that question, we turn to one of those researchers, Dr. David Brown. Dr. Brown practices at Retina Consultants of Texas in Houston. Dr. Brown, welcome back to New Retina Radio. Uh, Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Extended duration therapy is the name of the game at the moment in wet AMD therapy. We've already seen that about half of wet AMD patients treated with a flibercept can be extended to a 12-week interval. With that in mind, why explore whether an 8-milligram dose of a flibercept can be substituted for a 2-milligram dose? Sure, that's a great question. And it's something that is, uh, uh, you know, a misnomer, especially in the financial community, but even in the ophthalmology community. In other words, all of our studies predominantly are treatment naive patients. And if you take a treatment naive population, it's a bell curve of how fast you clear drug. People that clear drug fast need injections very often. People that don't clear drug fast can often get go eight, 10 weeks with almost every drug. So the, the, in our clinics where we know from CAT and we know from Harbor that approximately one in five patients only need three injections and they're done, that's the easiest part of the bell curve and those go away. So the bell curve gets shifted. And in my clinic, most of the patients need every four or five week dosing, even though in theory, we've got an eight week to 12 week drug, right? So the whole purpose of an eight milligram dose is simple math. It gives you two extra half-lives. The patients that clear drug fast, that may only be an extra week or so, but that's a big deal. To go from 13 injections a year to 11 or 10 is you know one or two or three less trips the family member has to take off school and drive grandma to, uh, to my appointment to give her her injection. That being said, the patients that are eight weeks, we're hoping that they can go, you know, potentially two to three weeks longer because they probably have a longer active half-life of drug. Let's get to the trial that explored the eight milligram dose in wet AMD, the Candela study. Tell us about it. Sure. It was a single mask open label phase two trial. And essentially patients got the exact same dosing with either eight milligram or two milligram. It was mask. Uh, you got three loading doses, and then the next potential dose came 12 weeks later. 
We did look at patients uh, eight weeks later, and if the investigators felt they really needed to be treated, uh, they were treated, but then that data was censored and it went last vision carried forward. After that, it was strict Q12 with PRN doses in between uh, with a primary endpoint at 44 weeks. During interviews like this, we usually start with efficacy and go to safety. But in your abstract, you started with safety and then moved to efficacy. First, tell us why the abstract was structured that way. And then second, tell us what were the safety findings? You know, we were pretty confident that eight milligram of flibrisup was going to be effective, right? We've got, it's our gold standard drug. We tested up to four milligram in the phase one, two years ago. But we really were pretty confident you would get at least the same efficacy, if not better, with eight milligram of flibrisup. The big question was, with this increase in protein, with the increased viscosity, it was 0.07 mils, not 0.05. Uh, our biggest concern was, is this even possible to treat patients with eight milligram? Uh, and so safety was our primary concern. That being said, I often present safety first. Because if you do have an efficacy surprise, in other words, it's good, I kind of like that as a big punchline. And so I, I, even though we're going to get to it, even though our trial was relatively small, you only have 53 in each arm, uh, and we didn't have statistical significance, it certainly looks like it, if you treat patients with this regimen, which is less rigorous than I would in my clinic, uh, it looks like you get better visual acuity and a better anatomic signal. Let's talk about that disease response. What was the disease response among patients in the study at the primary endpoint? So our primary endpoints were anatomic. You know, for registration or FDA approval, the agency won't take that as an endpoint. However, it's your best surrogate of how well a drug is working. And what we showed was definite trends of of improvements in both drying of the macula and the center subfield. The, they were not statistically significant, but for example, uh, center subfield at 16 weeks was 0.07. In a phase two trial, we easily could have done a p-value of point, you know, of, of uh, a significance of 0.1 instead of 0.05, and then it would have been significant. Uh, and so it, to us, it looked like there was an improved anatomic signal. There were more dry eyes at both 16 weeks and at 44 weeks. And the visual acuity curves were separate. I mean, patients were about two letters more, uh, two to three letters more in the eight milligram of flibrocept dose. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that's a result of, in my clinic, you get treated for any whiff of fluid. In most of the treatment trials we've had recently, you do a little more real world. In other words, patients can't make every appointment. Patients aren't treated so that you always keep them dry. And in that more real world treatment scenario, it really looked like the 8 milligram of flibrocept dose uh, could show some benefit. So you mentioned that the statistical significance was not necessarily achieved um, at the particular time points and with the particular anatomic measurables you looked for. I'm curious if this means that there is no further study planned for 8 milligram of Flibercept? No, absolutely. To the contrary. There are two phase three ongoing studies. Uh, you know, I think uh, in, in my simplistic way of thinking, a Flibercept uh, uh, really became sort of the gold standard over ranibizumab 
because of uh, an incremental improvements in efficacy. And I think that's due to molar blockade of VEGF. In other words, if you look at Lucentis, or I'm sorry, Ranibizumab, uh, if you look at a Flibercept as a one unit of anti-VEGF blockade, Ranibizumab was approximately 0.6. If you look at Brolicizumab, which just came out, uh, 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 and it, it's way stronger, but had inflammatory issues. If you look at Ferisumab, it's about 2.4 on that scale. So it's about, you know, it's about, uh, it's about 2.4 times the anti-VEGF dosing of our current aflibercept dose. By giving you eight milligram dosing, it's basically four times that. So it's trying to leapfrog uh, the potential advantage that people may see with ferisimab. We've been talking about wet AMD during this discussion, but I'm curious to know if there is any plan to research eight milligram of flibercept in other VEGF-mediated diseases. Absolutely. There's already a phase three eight milligram trial uh, in DME. Uh, we'll have the results uh, sometime next year. Uh, it is very likely that in VEGF-mediated diseases like DME, like RVO, uh, that we're much more likely to have an improved uh, response in, with a higher VEGF dose than actually in macular degeneration. Dr. David Brown, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your data from ARVO. My pleasure. Stay tuned for the phase three and... Uh, uh, hopefully we continue our fight against blindness, getting more drugs and better drugs out to, uh, for our patients. The port delivery system with ranibizumab was approved by the U.S. FDA for the treatment of wet AMD in October 2021. It goes by the marketing name Susvimo, and as more surgeons get their hands on it, we'll have real-world efficacy data in the coming years. During its review, the FDA relied on data from the Phase 3 Archway study. The primary endpoint of Archway was the change in BCVA from baseline, averaged over months 36 and 40 compared with monthly ranibizumab. But the study kept going, all the way to week 96, and now we have the complete study data ready for analysis. Dr. Robert Mitra shared those data at ARVO 2022. Dr. Mitra is in private practice with Retina Consultants of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Dr. Mitra, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We've heard plenty about the engineering of the PDS on this program, so let's skip right to the good parts and get to the data. First, can you give us a refresher on the structure of Archway? Yeah, the structure was that patients were randomly assigned to one of two arms. They either got standard of care monthly ranibizumab injections, or they were randomized to getting the PDS, and they would have refill exchanges done uh, essentially every 24 weeks through a two-year study. The patients in both arms had received prior ranibizumab injections to ensure that they responded to that. And on average, patients in the study received about five treatments prior to entering the study. The patients in the PDS arm were also eligible to receive supplemental injections if they recurred uh, active AMD findings before the 24-week refill exchange. All right. That seems pretty straightforward. Tell us what the research team found at the primary endpoint. primary endpoint was the average change in best corrected visual acuity from baseline 
averaged over weeks 36 and 40. In the PDS arm, they found plus 0.2 letters from baseline. In the monthly injection arm, there was plus 0.5 letters from baseline. It was determined that the PDS was non-inferior and equivalent to monthly ranibizumab injections at that time point. And that data was published online in September 2021 in the journal Ophthalmology. Now, some people will question that there was very little visual improvement in either of these arms. And the reason for that is that most of the patients had already received on average five injections of anti-VEGF prior to entering the study. So most of the visual acuity gains would have been seen in those pre-study injections. The study moved forward. It went all the way to week 96. Can you tell us what the team found as they explored further? So as the study continued on, we found that the PDS was still non-inferior to monthly ranibizumab's injections when the average best corrected visual acuity change from baseline was determined again at two different time points. One was at weeks 60 and 64. The difference was 0.4 letters favoring the PDS. And then again at weeks 88 and 92, where the difference was plus 0.6 letters favoring monthly ranibizumab injections. So the the study showed that throughout the two years, uh, basically doing monthly ranibizumab injections was the same from a vision standpoint as having the PDS with Q24 week refill exchanges. In addition, the anatomic measurements were also similar uh, between the two arms at all the pre-specified time points. And then what was the patient experience like in this study in practical terms, say number of patients needing a supplemental injection or safety? So throughout the four time periods in the study, uh, the PDS arm did allow supplemental injections to those that had activity before a refill exchange. And except for the first time point where 98% of the patients did not require supplemental. The other three time points, 95% of the patients did not receive supplemental injections of ranibizumab. And the systemic safety between both arms was similar as well. Let's talk about safety when it comes to the PDS as far as the surgery goes. I understand that there might be some complications with implanting the PDS and that there might be a few tips on mitigating those complications. Yeah, there were several important uh, complications that occurred with regards to the implant. Um, And these basically include problems with conjunctiva and problems with wound size. So, and I'll explain that the conjunctival problems that were seen were conjunctival erosions and retractions and conjunctival bleb leaks over the implant. And the other problems with the implant size had to do with implant dislocation. All of these things could lead to uh, the major complication of endophthalmitis. And that was really the one thing that we saw uh, that was of great concern as part of the study. There were four cases of endophthalmitis and three of these cases were directly related to conjunctival retraction. Um, So there are some surgical pearls that we can use that uh, we've determined over the course of the study can be helpful in trying to mitigate these problems with the conjunctiva. 
first off, picking the right patients. Um, many of these patients are older who have age-related macular degeneration, might have very thin conjunctiva and tenons capsule. You need to kind of examine preoperatively their superior conjunctiva where these implants are going to go in the supertemporal quadrant, determine if they have acceptable enough conj to allow for this procedure. And then postoperatively, you need to examine those areas closely. That's not something most retina specialists are used to doing, but you have to make sure that the conjunctiva is staying closed over this area, that there's no retraction, no blood leak, that type of thing. Um, additionally, in the actual surgery itself, uh, they do recommend um, closure of both the tenons capsule and the conjunctiva over the implant with a good scleral bite when you're doing the closure with suture uh, to make sure that this would stay intact over the implant. And then tell me about your experience implanting the PDS. Uh, what was the learning curve like? Are there any particular pearls you might give your fellow surgeons? I think that, you know, that technically the surgery is not very difficult, but there are a few um, things you do have to watch out for that I think any retina specialist can, can master. Um, but you're paying attention to the conjunctiva and tenons. You're using kind of a non-tooth forceps. So you don't create any buttonholes in it. You're being more careful with the conjunctiva than we usually are in most of our retina surgeries. Um, you want to do uh, a good size wound to allow the implant to go in easily, but you don't want it to be any more than 3.5 millimeters. Um, if it's larger than that, you need to put a suture in to make sure that you won't have any implant dislocations. As part of the surgery, we use laser to cauterize the choroid. And if you get some laser takes on the sclera on either side of the wound, you might enlarge the wound too much with that laser uptake. So one of the pearls is to really try to get the laser probe pointed directly at the choroid and only getting uptake in the choroid and not really extending over to the sclera. Dr. Mitra, congrats on a great presentation and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining New Retina Radio's coverage of Arvo 2022. If you missed our first two episodes, go back in the episode feed and find them. Please rate the podcast if you're using Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if that's your platform of choice. It helps your colleagues find the show. 